Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. Welcome back for another edition of Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland, your host. This week on the Nerdcast, we're bringing together two of the, the best minds on our White House team and our congressional team to just talk us through what happened at the White House this week and, and the, the fallout from uh, President Donald Trump's racist tweets last weekend. Plus, we were tracking a ton of new campaign finance information at the beginning of this week, and uh, we came away with some really interesting points from uh, one of our, our top political reporters about the state of the campaign, why a big shrink to that big Democratic primary field might be coming soon, and also exactly what's powering the uh, very top of the Democratic primary right now. As always, we're taping this on Thursday. Today, that's July 18th. So it's all up to date as of then. All right, let's dive right into it. I want to welcome our guests. First in the studio from the Politico White House team, we have Gabby Orr. Hi, Gabby. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And on the line from Capitol Hill, Heather Cagle from Politico's Dynamite Congress team. Hi, Heather. Hi, thanks. Thank you so much for, for getting on the line for us. So uh, let, let's get everyone up to speed here. Uh, for, for listeners who haven't been following What's been happening between Congress and President Trump this week? Heather, can you can you try and break it down as, as simply as possible? Well, I mean, I think we start with Sunday. Trump woke up and he took everyone by surprise, right? Even his closest allies by tweeting um, some disparaging racist tweets about four congresswomen, high profile, progressive freshmen, including Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, all four women of color. And he said they should, quote, go back to the countries from which they came. They are, of course, all Americans. Three of the women were born here. Omar became a citizen when she was 17. So Democrats immediately, they had been, there had been a lot of infighting within the House Democratic Caucus the previous week. They immediately rallied behind the four congresswomen and started tweeting at Trump, saying that what he said was racist, it was wrong. When they came back to the Hill on Monday, they decided they were going to vote to condemn his remarks, which is what they did earlier this week. Four Republicans crossed the aisle, all moderates, and joined them in the condemnation. And then Trump has a rally on Wednesday night, and he repeats what he had already said, and the crowd erupts in a send-her-back chant, talking about Omar, who was born in Somalia. And here we are on Thursday, and Democrats are about to pass a huge minimum wage bill. It's one of their main campaign planks. It's what they ran on, and no one's talking about it. They're still talking about Trump, what he said on Sunday, what he said last night, and it's overshadowing their whole agenda once again. Now, m meanwhile, Gabby, and, and you and the White House team are reporting on this all week, and Trump has has doubled and tripled down on these remarks. But at the same time, it's very clear that that certainly his advisors, and, and but even he knows that that what he said is... is 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 a big problem uh, in in the way in the way that he and his staff have reacted to this, trying to argue that what he actually said was different than 
than what he really said. <laughs> Absolutely. There was sort of this evolution from the time the president first tweeted on Sunday, suggesting that these women go back to the countries that they came from, uh, to, to Monday afternoon, where you had Trump campaign advisors and Republicans on the Hill uh, saying, well, no, what he meant is that uh, the, these people, if they can't embrace you know, the patriotic agenda that his administration is, is uh, putting forward, then they should leave the country. And so it was this clarifying moment where you saw Republicans and the president's allies, both in his campaign and, and inside the White House, sort of take lemons and try to make lemonade. And it hasn't worked well in the last few days. I mean, if you look at um, just the onslaught of criticism from Republicans who were quiet at the outset, but have now said, particularly after last night's send her back chant, that this has just gone too far. Uh, we heard from Leader McConnell suggesting that the president should just take it down a notch, that this rhetoric is unhelpful um, for both parties to be dealing with. We've seen it from other Republican congressmen. And behind the scenes, if you talk to the Trump campaign, it's one thing for them to take a set of tweets and to sort of turn those into uh, a message that can fit more broadly into his campaign narrative. But it's another thing for them to justify a crowd in the thousands suggesting that a congresswoman needs to be uh, you know, t removed from the country and sent to her country of origin. It's just difficult for them to spin that in any way. Right. Um, and, and I mean, we're starting to see more Republicans speaking out about it, but we're also seeing a surprising, well, maybe surprising isn't the right word, but we're seeing a large number of Republicans trying to justify it. Yeah, we are. Um, you know, Lindsey Graham has suggested the president was fully within his rights to to go on the attack against these four progressive congresswomen who he described as a bunch of communists when he was on Fox and Friends Monday morning. And, and he doubled down during an appearance on Hannity last night. You know, Lindsey Graham is usually not somebody to um, engage in the same type of rhetoric that the president has used. But here he is employing those same same attacks. And, and he's not the only one on the Republican side. Um, and one thing that, that's interesting about this is that a lot of Republicans, and especially the president, actually think that these attacks, despite um, the, the impact that they may have on swing voters, has helped elevate these four Democratic congresswomen to a place where they are now the face of the Democratic Party. And no matter how many uh, criticisms he faces from Democrats, no matter how uncomfortable this makes battleground state voters, if he can ensure that those four women remain the face of the Democratic Party, uh, he and his campaign at least think that that works to their advantage. It's an interesting argument. I mean, I guess the, the one thing, the, there are a million different ways that he could have elevated them without this wasn't the ideal racist. way to do that. Right. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. And now, Heather, you, you mentioned briefly at the beginning of the segment, there's like a rich backstory here in terms of just what's going been going on inside the Democratic Party mm -hmm. with with the rise of, of these uh, very progressive, very outspoken Democratic women in Congress and their the kind of new power center that they have at least been trying to create for themselves within the party and within the congressional caucus. Yeah, I think this is, you know, this has been a real struggle for Pelosi. This is her second time as speaker. She's been leader of the Democratic caucus for nearly two decades now. Most of the House Democrats that are serving right now have only known Pelosi as their leader, right? And she has had a very top-down approach in the time that she has led the caucus. And in the past couple of years, we've seen even before AOC and other members of the squad came uh, were elected last year, we saw some internal grumbling within the caucus. Folks were saying, hey, 
you're, you know, you've been here 20 years. Your two deputies have been here for a dozen to 15. You guys are all near, nearly 80 years old. Like, we need to start talking about a transition, even if it doesn't happen now. And so when the squad members were elected, you know, they brought with them millions of Twitter followers, a huge social media following, things like that. And I don't think Pelosi is used to having that power center shifted away from her in that way. And she's really not used to members within her caucus critiquing her so publicly. And for instance, AOC last week said that she thought that Pelosi was picking women of color, including herself, within the caucus to single out for criticism. And that ignited this huge firestorm within the caucus of people rushing to defend Pelosi, rushing to defend the squad. And, you know, all of that infighting was still going on over the weekend. There was even a tweet from the House Democratic Caucus account targeting AOC's chief of staff at Friday night at 9.30 p.m. I mean, it was like a very random time, but we all... Who among us hasn't hate-tweeted at someone at the, <laughs> uh, on, on the weekend? It's like... Well, so we all thought going into this week, uh, on Saturday, we all thought on Saturday going into this week, it was going to be more of this, more of this infighting. And then, you know, Trump wakes up and tweets all this stuff on Sunday. And I'm it, Democrats privately, like, they hate the content of the tweets, but they did admit, like, this was a real gift for them because it got them all back on the same page, you know? Yeah, there's not, I mean, we, you know, we've been having presidential candidates uh, coming through the office now at Politico to talk, talk to the reporters and the editors on staff. And it's, I mean, it's, it's remarkable the like breadth and difference of their visions for the country and what they think is, but they're, they're like, there's nothing that unites them more than, uh, than Trump and, yeah. and, and opposition to him. Gabby, getting back to what you said before, that's the, this focus that, that uh, Trump has on, on motivating his base, as you said, and about kind of trying to, to drive this wedge, is uh, we we did just see him try to do that in an election that just we we just did a test run of this, where he spent kind of the last month before the 2018 midterms trying to do this and trying to turn up the volume on every culture clash and 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 base revving activity, and it was a monumental failure. It, it was, and it's sort of remarkable that you're not hearing campaign advisors publicly say, well, why don't we reconsider um, the approach here? Because, you know, Brad Parscale, the manager of the president's 2020 re-election campaign, has previously told reporters that his main uh, objective here is to bring in voters who wouldn't have necessarily cast their ballots for the president in 2016, but didn't despise him either and and might be willing to support him this time around if they've been uh, if they've felt that his policies have done done good work in the country. And yet when you look at a rally like last night where you just have, you know, people uh, spewing such vitriol, it's really difficult for those types of voters that the Trump campaign is targeting to be brought into the fold. I mean, it is hard to see how that strategy works. And so I think that's why so many Republicans are sort of trying to pull the president back into this message where it is an ideological battle. It has nothing to do with ethnicity, nothing to do with race. They want this to be, you know, a, a patriotism versus radical progressivism. Um, that's the message that they're looking for. And yet, as we've seen over the past you know, four years since President Tr- Trump first got onto the political stage, it is very difficult to control his messaging. And when he latches onto something or when he thinks he's onto the right sort of narrative, uh, to pull him away from that is almost impossible. And I want to build on what Gabby is saying. There are a lot of Republicans on the Hill who 
have not criticized him publicly on this or have done so gently, but they are telling us privately they are just so discouraged by this and what they see as like, you know, 2016's locker up is now 2019 send her back. And will this be, you know, the next several months until November 2020? And what they're saying to us is, sure, this excites the base and gets these people at these rallies riled up. But what does this do for women voters who they already have a huge problem with and, you know, attracting female candidates to run? I mean, if you look in the House, they only have 13 Republican women, which is I mean, that that dropped, I think, 10 from the last election. And one of those women, Susan Brooks, she actually voted for the resolution earlier this week to condemn Trump. She's retiring. She is the head of recruitment for the Republican campaign arm. And so her retirement speaks volumes because she basically looked around and was like, you know what, this isn't going to get better. I think I'm going to leave. You know, and so that's where they are. And they say that these comments and him continuing to double and triple down and maybe make this an ongoing theme is just very worrisome for them privately, even though they will not say that publicly. It comes at a really interesting time, too, because a lot of the things that the president has been talking about is the um, unemployment rates among African-Americans, among Latinos. He typically points to those different items during his remarks to reporters at his campaign rallies. And he has, you know, I was talking to a campaign official earlier this week who said the president sort of has this false perception of how minority voters view him because he watches Fox News constantly. And he he thinks that, you know, the the minorities who are brought onto that channel and speak very positively of him are representative of of sort of all minority voters out there. And, And so he doesn't think that these comments will necessarily do as much harm as they actually will. But I expect as we see more polls, uh, in the coming weeks, uh, perhaps if his approval rating declines further among African-Americans and Latinos um, or, or even among the, that, that base support group, it'll be a wake-up call for him. And his advisors will sort of latch onto that and say, look, Mr. President, you really need to rethink this. All right. Well, we've got a lot to keep track of over, over the coming weeks for sure. Gabby, thank you so much for coming in and, and talking us through that. Always. Heather, thank you very much for making the time. I'll let you uh, uh, get back to, to chasing those votes and the, those members around. <laughs> no, thanks for having me. It was great to talk to you guys. All right. Take care. All right. Bye. All right. We're now going to turn to uh, a little bit of a niche topic, campaign finance. But we're going to be talking about why this is such an important metric to track, uh, not just on the fundraising side, but on the spending side, to really get a sense of what's going on in the 2020 Democratic primary and what changes, what big changes we might see in that primary field over the next maybe three months or so. So uh, joining us to talk through it, we've got senior politics editor Charlie Matessian in the studio with me. Hi, Charlie. Hey, Scott. And on the line from a courtyard hotel in El Paso, we have Politico national political correspondent David Siders. David, how's it going? Hi, I'm well. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Very excited to talk uh, campaign finance uh, with you, but more importantly, what it means uh, for for the race. So uh, you uh, you and I and some others, uh, we stayed up really late uh, on Monday night. We were uh, rolling through uh, the FEC reports as they came in, and uh, you you you. Turned up some really interesting stats and basically like what 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 all these financial figures say about broadly the state of the the democratic field. Can you talk us through that? Uh, yeah, I think that it's in the broadest strokes just a an opening of the or a division in the field between what uh, you know, who the front runners are, the the five or so candidates who are not only raising a lot of money but also polling well. They seem to line up, and then the rest. And so what. You know what three months ago might have been looked at it as a race of 
just a, a huge number of candidates in 5,300 different lanes uh, now really looks like like two different uh, segments of candidates. And there, there may be movement between them, but at least now there seems to be this uh, chasm between them. And I mean, that's we're talking about the top five. We've got Biden, Harris, Sanders, Warren, Buttigieg, who are raising a ton of money, spending a ton of money. Top five in the polls, mostly. And then everyone else. And it's not just that the, those folks are having trouble raising as much money or, or getting as much support in the polls, but they, you, there, there's evidence that their campaigns are kind of tilting toward the red a little bit from a financial perspective, too. And that, that could be the real that could be a real shrinking factor in the race over, over the next three to six months. Oh, definitely. I, I think I think you compiled this data on the number of candidates who were already spending more than they or spending more in the in the quarter than they raised. And if you have a lot of carryover money, like some of these senators do uh, from previous accounts or you know, a better first fundraising quarter, you can sustain that for a while. But I mean, one one of the real problems these folks are going to face is that as they're still trying to, you know, buy enough donors to get onto the debate stage, uh, to even have Spartan staffs in early states, the the people with big money are going to start spending it more now. And so I, I think you're going to see a compounding effect of the people who have money accelerating their campaigns and the people who don't have money really uh, gasping for air. Hey, David, can you uh, explain to our listeners what you mean by buying donors? Yeah, maybe that's a crass way to put it. Um, Although it's true. Th- I just think you need to ex- explain like what the <laughs> campaigns are forced to do because of the debate format this year. Yeah, I think with this requirement that people get 130,000 donors to make the September debate, uh, it, it's forcing people to pay a lot of attention to getting even tiny um donations. So when I say pay to get a donor, I mean pay for the digital ad, um, for the email blast, whatever it is that you're trying to reach that potential donor with. And in some cases, you may be spending more than the you know, dollar donation that you end up getting. But the fact that somebody is donating is so much more important than the amount if you're just trying to get on the debate stage. Or if like Tom Steyer and you can self-fund, you still need to have those, you know, that huge amount of donors, they can come in at a tiny amount, uh, but you just need the number. So you might be willing to pay for that. And meanwhile, um, as, as you said, David, and actually our, our colleague Daniel Strauss was describing this yesterday. He, he was calling it almost, it's a feedback loop almost. You've got the, the, the top candidates are raising more money. They're hiring more staff. They're doing more stuff on the ground, getting more support, which is kind of feeding back into their, their financial advantages. And then they're growing even bigger campaigns while you've got, as you said, the, some, some of these others stuck in neutral a little bit trying to, to just stay above water to maybe make the debates. And it also puts a lot of pressure on the on these folks to to really like try and and do something at the debates that's going to grab a lot of attention. Charlie, that's what that's what occurred to me as one of the the big takeaways from this was just how important the June debates were for just keeping some of these candidates financially afloat, uh, who who may have had to drop out otherwise uh, before the the second quarter deadline. And that made me think is like wow, you know, people looking at that lesson and going into the July debate, we could see some fireworks uh, for for you know. For better or if you're, you know, DNC chair Tom Perez, maybe for worse. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, because you see in the FEC numbers that some people were really cutting it close. You see some people who had, like, you look at Kamala Harris, for example. Her numbers might have been very, very weak had she not had the moment where she ate Joe Biden's lunch. So uh, 
uh, I mean, that's a big takeaway. To me, another big takeaway is uh, is what David was talking about, which is we now have a new primary order. Uh, in the past, uh, you know, in that first quarter, we weren't sure. We knew that Joe Biden was the front runner. Everybody else was chasing him. Maybe Bernie Sanders was a close second. Now that uh, I think is out the window. Uh, what we have now is a, a top tier that's hardening, and that top tier is the five candidates we talked about, which is uh, Biden, uh, Sanders, uh, Buttigieg, Warren, and Harris. It's flatter than it's been before, meaning Biden doesn't have a big lead. If he's leading at all, it's by just a little bit. And so, uh, and then the other point is what, what you had mentioned before, which is it's getting flatter, it's a new top tier, and it's getting harder for those people who aren't in the top tier, meaning the financial advantages that that top tier, the new five-person top tier has, makes it so hard for the people on the bottom to break out now because they can't organize, they don't have the money to organize, they don't have uh, the money to put the staff in the field, uh, to put the ground game in place, so it's just becoming harder and harder. Meanwhile, uh, another interesting data point on this uh, front from our colleague Maggie Severns uh, this morning, tracking uh, close to 2,000 Democratic bundlers and where they're putting their money. And now what are are bundlers? Those are people, you know, you can only give a maximum of $2,800 per per primary or general election right now, right? But but bundlers are folks who are able to, they have a network maybe of, you know, they can get 100 people to each give uh, $1,000, right? And then they, they can deliver that, that bundle of checks to a campaign. And that's, so they're very influential fundraisers. And we're tracking about 2,000 of them who had bundled a lot of money for either President Obama's 2012 campaign or Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign. And uh, what she found in all this data is that uh, you've got of that top five, three who are turning into big favorites of this elite Democratic fundraising class, Harris, Biden, and Buttigieg. And then I think the, you know, the other elements of that that's interesting is you've then got two more candidates in the top five who are actually keeping pace or even exceeding some of those financially without doing any of this. And that's Warren and Sanders who are just doing the kind of the online email-based small donor stuff. And that's that's a really fascinating development that we've never no, nothing like that has ever happened before, Charlie. Right. Ma- Mackie's story was was terrific in a lot of ways. But the, one of the things that really caught my eye was the idea that, you know, uh, Warren, Buttigieg, and Biden were the inheritors of the that sort of uh, bundler infrastructure. And th- it's interesting for a bunch of different reasons. Um, Biden tells you what they think about the present, which is that all these bundlers, all these wealthy people, they have deep relationships with him. Uh, you know, maybe they were ambassadors as a result of their relationships with Biden and Obama. Many of them probably have have Biden or Obama's photos in their offices. So they have pre-existing relationships. There's some loyalty. They think he's the front runner. They're very practical minded. I mean, these bundlers aren't necessarily doing it for ideology. Some of them do. But I mean, they're 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 realists. They, they're buying access. They, Harris and Buttigieg, they see them as investments in the future. Meaning if you're looking at, I mean, they both could win. But even in a worst case scenario, if you're a bundler, say you you are bundling money for Pete Buttigieg, that guy's going to be on the national political scene for the next 40 years. You know, he's not going away. So he could lose. He could fade away, um, have a big gaffe or what? who knows what happens to his campaign. He will be around for a long time to come because keep in mind, he is 40 years younger than Joe Biden. So in 40 years, he would be Joe Biden's age. <laughs> so that's not a bad investment to make. Uh, because he will be in some administration, if not the president, at some point, he will he will be a player or he will continue to be a Democratic uh, player. David, I want to give you the last word on this segment. We mentioned at the beginning, you're in El Paso, a name that we have not mentioned as part of this top tier or uh, top fundraising tier or anything like that so far is Beto O'Rourke. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the state of his campaign right now? It's interesting. The, the 
fundraising was just dismal uh, this week. He came in raising less than $4 million, uh, less than his first quarter, less than any quarter. Less than his uh, first day year. in the presidential race. Indeed. Uh, they, they had an interesting way of spinning it. As a, they, I think they called it, an, we had an extended Q2 uh, because he got into the race <laughs> later in the first quarter. Um, but it, the fundraising's not great. Uh, it doesn't match up with his organization, which continues to grow and grow. Um, in El Paso yesterday, they had their first, um, they opened a field office here and they had their first high, uh, professional camera to be doing video work. You know, O'Rourke is leaving town tomorrow again. He'll be on the road more and more. And he told reporters yesterday that that he just needs to keep at it. Uh, it didn't seem to signal a big swing or shift, but that's a candidate who is in desperate need of a moment, something big for him at the debate. Uh, the one advantage I, that he does have over some of these others is that he will qualify for the fall debates because mm-hmm. he does have enough small dollar donors. So it gives him a little bit longer to try to have that moment. But yeah, the state of the campaign, I would say, is is not um, it's not what it once was. Yeah. And David, I know you, I know you have to run here, so we'll let you go. But I just think that that point you just made about how his campaign is continuing to grow in size while the fundraising is stagnating or dropping a little bit. That's that's going to be an important factor to watch over the next three months. You know, there's there's always uh, th- this. I, and I think I, I also assumed at one point that we were gonna, really going to end up with 24 candidates by the time we got to Iowa. But we're really just starting to see the evidence of the the pressures of the campaign, uh, logistically speaking, not even in terms of public opinion, that are going to be weighing on some some candidates who are trying to build a campaign of the size that they need to win, but might not be able to finance it for the next six, seven months until we get to Iowa. And uh, uh, I think I think El Paso is going to be one of the places where we're, we're looking to see if uh, whether or not that comes to pass. David, thank you so much for making the time to uh, to talk through uh, this all with us. Thank you. And Charlie, thank you as always for for being here in the studio. Thanks, Scott. And as always, a big thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in this week. We hope you enjoyed the show. Our producer this week is Jenny Ahmed. Dave Shaw is our executive producer. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please remember, you can do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Once again, thanks for tuning in. We'll talk to you again next week.